Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Gail. Hi, Julie. Hi, Gail. We have Gail Boning. Is that how you say your name? Benning, as it like Annette Benning, like the O isn't there. All right. Gail Benning. Thank you. And Gail is here very courageously because she is in the middle of identity loss and refiguring out who she's becoming in the middle of, of um, working through cancer. Is that a good way to put it? <laughs> that is an excellent way to put it. I feel like I'm two thirds of the way through treatment, so I'm getting there. Okay. So let's just have you start where you'd like with your story. And then, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the before, during, before, and then after the diagnosis, because when a person gets a life-threatening diagnosis, it's a big deal. And a lot happens to a person's identity. And then, then so now you're in the process of both saving your life and figuring out who you are and who you will become over time as a result of basically this mortality moment that happens when we're given a life-threatening diagnosis. Isn't that sort of where you are and what's going on? Yes. And I feel like I have had many hashtag cancer gifts along the way. And I um, am just, believe it or not, grateful for the experience. You know, a lot of people can say that after the fact, and to be able to say that in the middle shows such awareness of sort of the human experience. And so I just can't wait to hear your story. Let's, let's just get started. Okay. And, and, I, and I do interrupt along the way. So I'm, I hope that, and I try not to interrupt, like, and then be sorry later that you were saying something really good and I interrupted. I'm getting better. But. I have to say that I spent some time listening to some of your episodes before coming on today. Uh-huh. And I don't remember which episode it was, but one gentleman offered you a correction because you used the word interrupt. And he said, dig a little deeper or something like that. And you're like, yes, that sounds much better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess, you know, I always used to get in trouble in school for interrupting, not raising my hand, not like speaking at the right time. And so it's sort of a a little chip on my shoulder, I guess. I think that's the way meaningful conversations go. You know, we want to know more. So we ask a question, right? Right. Yeah. Hopefully we want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Gail, start, start where you'd like. Okay. So first I want to start by saying thank you for having me on today. I have a friend who says that uh, stories are the currency of connection, and I am grateful to connect deeper with you and with your audience. And I wanted to go back to maybe the point where you and I first connected, which was in an akimbo workshop. 
And um, that was kind of a, a life transition phase for me, but a, a transition that I chose. And it was um, a big opening um, up myself to other people. And I feel like I was on a path where I had met new friends who were encouraging me as a writer. And I um, was invited to contribute to an anthology of another writer's book. Ooh. And then I published three as books. A, as a result of showing up. As a result and, of and showing up. And can I just up. contextualize this a little more? This was a this was a Seth Godin class where it was for creatives to be creative every day in a row for a hundred days and not creative in in isolation, but actually to put our work out for others to see it in that course. So it was a very, you know, it was a time where you don't wait until you're ready to show your work. Right, right. You just show up and you put it out there. Right. And, and, so and it started three months before COVID. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which gave us a lot of opportunity to participate, right? Because we were home. Right. Um, For the second half of it, at least. Yes. So as a result of that workshop, I was blossoming. I felt like I was headed in this um, very positive direction. And I had started a new blog in January and I received my diagnosis in February of this year, 2022. So hold on. So what you said, this this was a chosen transition. So what were you choosing to move away from and go towards when you entered into that class? Um, uh, not so much even move away from something in particular. I had been writing for probably about three years at that time, publishing okay. a daily blog. It was more of a growth opportunity, a transition to maybe figure out how I might take my writing to a different level. To level up. To level up. Okay. And so we, we started in January and you got your diagnosis in February. I did. So let's go back to November, which is when I first discovered that I had a mass in my breast. Um, and what happened was I was walking my dog and she's a young Labrador who has lots of energy mm. and she jumped up and her shoulder collided with my chest mm. and it hurt and, you know, stopped, caught my breath, kept going. But then there was pain there like pretty significant pain for a couple of days. And I could feel that there was something there, but I think it's really human nature to say, oh, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did for about three weeks, maybe. Oh, it's nothing. It's scar tissue. It's from her bumping into me. But then after that time passed, I thought I better call and make an appointment with my OBGYN. Wait, scar tissue from what? From colliding with the dog. Because the dog's shoulder collided into me. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's just a lump in there from her bumping into me. Um, you know, the brain rationalizing as mm -hmm. it will do. To avoid avoid worst case scenarios, which exactly. in, in general is good. Yes. If we go into worst case scenarios with everything, then we won't make it through the day. Right. So after about three weeks, I did call to get in with my OBGYN for a just a regular appointment. 
you know, with COVID, things had kind of been pushed off. Medical appointments weren't happening as they normally do. And um, so I called and made the appointment. I still didn't say anything that I had felt something. I just made the appointment. So it was maybe six weeks out, still rationalizing that it's nothing. And so I think it was in January, like around the 27th that I had my appointment with my doctor and I told her the what had happened with my dog and that I, I didn't think it was anything. And she said, well, you might be right, but let's get that mammogram scheduled as soon as possible. And so I did, I think I went in for my mammogram on February 9th. And um, as the technician was taking the pictures and then did an ultrasound, there was a feeling that she thought something was going on. And after I was finished with the exam, she consulted with the radiologist on staff that day who suggested that I have a biopsy. Wow, that day. Yes, but I didn't have the biopsy that day, two days No, but, but yes, I mean, because... Usually those staff people aren't supposed to really get involved with diagnosis, but it sounds like this person decided this was definitely something to, it was a red flag. Yes, the radiologist thought that it was significant enough that it should be bi biopsied. And so once that happens, the medical um, profession moves pretty fast, at least in my experience. So... I was scheduled for a biopsy two days later mm, and received, received my diagnosis the next day. Ooh. And, and tell us about those moments and the hours after receiving and the week or two after, because does it take a time to sink in or what happens when that happens? Uh, that's a great question. So when when I received the phone call with the diagnosis, I had been out walking my dog again. She gets a lot of walks and um, I was driving home and it, it just kind of felt surreal. Like, mm -hmm. is this really happening? Shock. Yes. I will say that um, I learned something that day that I did not know existed and that there is a position, at least in the, the clinic that I'm being treated by called a nurse navigator. Mm. And she is a person who uh, manages your care in that she is connected to the surgeon, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist. And she is there really to serve the patients under her direction and to schedule their appointments and get them through a very scary time. So we what used to gift. call that a case manager. Okay. Somebody to, so that's wonderful to have somebody sort of on top of it. Cause as we all know, things really can fall through the cracks so easily. Yes. And so it sounds like it was her job to make sure that everything ran smoothly and that you also were held through this process. Yes. And so she called me within hours of talking to the radiologist with the diagnosis. And that day she set me up to see the surgeon and for an, a breast MRI and also to see the medical oncologist. 
So within a week, I was having all of those appointments. And, and if I may ask, and you don't have to answer, but what was the diagnosis? Um, that's an was excellent it, question. Was it like, I mean, because there's different late stages of critical. So um, when, the, when I first spoke with the radiologist, he just said that it was invasive ductal carcinoma. And they did not have a clear picture of what type of breast cancer I had that day. But they the word had, invasive was not good. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my tissue was not conclusive. The first testing was not conclusive. So they sent it on for further testing. And I learned that there are four different classifications of breast cancer. There is estrogen-fueled, progesterone-fueled. Those were ruled out right away. I did not have either one of those. But um, the potentials were something called HER2, which is a cancer that's fueled by a protein in the cell. And the fourth one is called triple negative, which simply means it's not the other three. Um, okay, it's, it's definitely cancer, but it's not the other three. Right. So of the four types of cancer, triple negative is the most aggressive and the one they know the least about, and they treat it with, with a heavy hand because they want to knock it out of you. So I think I maybe waited three or four days to get the final diagnosis. And I do did have triple negative breast cancer. So they, depending on which kind you have, they treat it differently. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the medical oncologist, I started with chemotherapy because that is their first goal with that type of cancer is to shut the cell production down so that it doesn't spread to other parts of your body. And did you have a whole body scan to make sure that it hadn't already spread? I did not. But um, when I saw the oncologist, I had a blood test that day, which um, showed an elevated liver enzyme count. I think that was the primary uh, count that was off. So they were being extra careful to check that. So I did have first a CT scan of my abdomen, and then that was not conclusive enough. So then I had an MRI, but they did rule out any cancer or mass in any other organs. And also I should say when I had my biopsy of my breast, they also did lymph nodes in my armpit. Mm -hmm. um, and gratefully I was, I, it came back clean. My lymph nodes were clean. So which, this little puppy, did you a heck of a service that day? She did. She did. Okay, sorry um, for interrupting. That's okay. I could also mention that, you know, how important screenings are. It had only been, I was only four months past my annual uh, mammogram. So in a year and four months, the mass had grown quite large. Uh, I, I believe it measured five centimeters. And so for staging purposes, because my lymph node was clean, but based on the size of the mass, they staged me at a two. I was right on the edge of a two and a three, and they staged me as the two, which the oncologist explained the difference for that is in how they can get certain treatments approved through insurance. Oh, God. 
Um, so it's relevant in that vein. You know, he said being right on the edge, whether you're a two or you are a three, it opens you up for, um, uh, what's the word I want to use when they do something new? Exploratory? Uh, or, uh, um, no, that's not the word. Because I know my friend. Trials. Medical okay. trials. Okay. Yeah. Um, then after all of that, those first two weeks were very challenging because as you you so adeptly mentioned, like it's like the floor is falling out. You don't know what's going to happen. Fear is at the forefront of your mind. And I don't, I suspect that if any of us and you or anybody in your audience thinks back to their childhood, there are certain things that happen in your family that you know you never want to happen to you. Well, my mother died of cancer when I was 10. So that oh. left a pretty big impact on my thinking around cancer. Oh, yes. And so, you know, the fear was pretty high. And do That's, you have children yourself? I have one. He's 21. But you're still a mom. You yeah. still have somebody there. Yes. Yeah. So the fear is pretty high pretty high yeah <laughs> like on a scale of one to ten is it a <laughs> ten plus um okay I have to say that I had started reading a book before my diagnosis called loving what is by Byron Katie right. and I can't say necessarily what the author meant I can say what my interpretation of reading her book meant to me and it was that things in life happen for a reason. And either this journey for me was going to be um, something to learn and grow from. And if I did not survive, there's a bigger plan than just myself. And that I did believe that I could be accepting of that. So the fear was still there, not so much of um, death, but more so of the treatment, I was very afraid of the chemotherapy, having grown up with my mom experiencing that, you know, 30 plus years ago, when it was a lot more intense than it is today, they've come so far in mitigating a mm -hmm. lot of the um, side effects. Mm -hmm. And um, so probably that was my biggest fear is the chemotherapy. So the Wow. So this book, this one book that just happened to come into your life before this diagnosis helped you lower your fear of death. And instead, you're, you're afraid of, you know, what you're going into, which is the next step, which is the chemotherapy. Yes. But that's pretty powerful to have. This is called you know, this is all mindset stuff, isn't it? It is. It is. You're at a long time ago. I read a book by a man named Keith Harrell. My husband um, went to a workshop with his company and the man Keith Harrell spoke at, at his, one of their dinners and he got the book and brought it home. And it, I think was called Attitude is Everything. And that book left a big impact on me. So, you know, it's amazing how we take in things from different times or places in our life 
that give us the strength or the fortitude or the awareness to approach something that might happen 10 or 20 years later. Yeah, and then we, we draw on these this stuff that we don't even know that we had. I remember sometime in the last 20 years learning the difference between respond and react and that we have this choice. And for me, that that changed everything for me. Uh, yes, and somebody um, recently built on that for me. They said that you can either be a reactor or a creator. How powerful is that? When something happens, you have the agency, the power through your reactions to frame and shape that experience. Through your choices. Yes. Yes, that is, that's a good one. I hadn't heard of that. It was new to me too. I love it. So this is how we ended up like signing up for this, this session together today, because you told me, I was like, well, what's it like, you know, to get this diagnosis? And you told me, well, I got this book right beforehand and it changed everything. Yes. And I feel like also lots of resources in addition to Byron Katie's books have been coming to me over the last maybe 10 years. I started practicing yoga about 10, 12 years ago, which slowed me down, helped me approach life a little bit differently. I started writing and publishing almost daily, which as you may know, Seth Godin calls writing organized thinking. And once you do start putting words on the page, whether you share them or not, it does really help you focus your thoughts and build a life the way you want to see it. And yes, designing your life instead of letting your life happen to you. Yes. So on my first day of chemotherapy, I was like a noodle in the chair. I didn't, you know, I had gone through all of my testing and talked to the surgeon and the oncologist. I think I was just tired that for, and they also, they give you Benadryl. Uh, with certain chemotherapy drugs, you get Benadryl to manage allergic reactions mm -hmm. and Benadryl makes you tired. So that I was just like, the oncology nurses were just, they're angels. They give you something to drink, a heated blanket. They're checking on you. They're all very kind. And so the first day I pretty much slept through treatment. I was happy to say that my side effects were not nearly as bad as I thought they could be a little bit of nausea, tired, but um, I was not down and out by any means. So by the time I went back, the first round of chemotherapy I received was weekly. By the time I went back the next Thursday, I was just feeling much more empowered. And I had made a decision that I could either approach the rest of this journey with fear or with love. And I was going to choose love. And the way I was going to choose love was by being as good of a patient as I could be and by giving back to my caregivers in any way that I could. And so I had recently started drawing, also an offshoot from that workshop we participated in together. And I would um, draw pictures for my nurses and give them to my nurses. And that has just made all of the difference in making me feel in, instead of like cancer is happening to me 
I can make it feel like it's happening for me. For you and with you. Yeah. Yep. And and so wait, how did that happen? Because of giving back? What what's the connection there? I just felt like instead of being the limp noodle in the chair every week, I could show up with my pencils and my sketch pad and I could ask my caregivers things about themselves. One of my nurses likes to vacation in Colorado. So I found a picture of mountains and sketched those for her. One of my uh, oncology nurses was having a baby. So I found a poem about motherhood and sketched a picture of her holding a baby and was able to give that to her. And so um, the power of connection, instead of looking at my caregivers as just being there to serve me, I also found a way that I felt like I could serve them back. And not just give them a picture, but to, to become in a relationship with them, learn something about who they are and what they valued, and then give that back to them in the picture. That is super powerful. Thank you. Wow. And, and while you were there too, I'm excited just hearing about that. I mean, this could be a therapeutic add-on that could be, you know, you could, or somebody could help other people do the same thing. Uh, yes. Those, those who are inclined. I, I agree. Um, I, I can't, I was in conversation with another friend where he, ex, he said to me something to the effect of, you know, the difference between a patient going through who feels like a victim who cancer is happening to, and somebody who feels that they have agency, that they have a role to play in their treatment can make all the difference. And it certainly did for me. They say there's no I in team, but I got to be the I on my cancer team and it has made all the difference. Wow. Wow. So then, so that becoming that I on the team, that was a total new identity that you probably never expected you would have. You're right about that. And so... Let's let's do a little mini shot snapshot, the you coming into treatment, and then the you when you discovered that I, you inserted that I into the team. Uh, just incredibly empowering. And I have a, a young woman who used to style my hair, who has moved away from the area. She had, I think, lymphoma when she was in her 20s. And we have stayed in contact through, um, you know, online chat. And I just said to her this week in a message, you know, is it strange that I look forward to going to treatment and bringing things to my caregivers? And she said, actually, no, I don't think it's strange because I kind of felt the same way. They become a part, I mean, you're so intimate. They become a part of your life. So I will say that I've also, this has to do with a life transition. 
I've had my surgery and um, happy to say that the pathology came back um, showing no active cancer, which is fantastic. Yay, yay, yay. yay. <laughs> but after that happened, the next time I went to, I'm currently still receiving medication through my port which is an immunotherapy drug. I don't receive chemotherapy anymore, but there's this new, relatively new treatment called immunotherapy that activates your own immune system against cancer. And I'll continue to receive that um, until next February. So the first time I went in for that after my clean pathology, I almost felt a bit of sadness. Like I had lost a piece of my cancer identity. Does that sound funny? No, no, because it, number one, what it shows to me is that you fully embraced this new identity. Because, you know, you could have been in denial, or you could have been pissed off, and you probably were pissed off a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't the, that wasn't the identity that you chose to follow through with. You chose this new identity of this is my reality. And I'm going to this is, you know, you found a way to, to do, you know, elevate yourself in that reality. And now the way that you elevated yourself is, is like, obsolete. Right? Right. Although, as you as you mentioned, I do see an opportunity in some way to give back. Like I, I am planning, I've started a book and maybe there's some way that I can volunteer or something else to help other patients. Just maybe even through sharing my story with them. I mean, it doesn't mean that they will take the same path that I did, but it might help them reflect on their journey and embrace it a little differently. Exactly. So when we tell our stories, it's not so that other people do what we did. It what happens is that people, when they hear a story, they're parallel storytelling in their own mind, their own story. And then it sets off these neurons so that they get new ideas that are going to be different. They may be the same, but you know, they're often different solutions. And that's why storytelling is so powerful because people, it just loosens up the imagination so that people can find new information from within by hearing these stories that then they can change the direction of their story. Right. Right. I, I want to be very careful in that I don't ever want to say I have the way to do it, but here is how I did it. And if it helps you to think about it that way, I'm happy to share. Right. And, and that's what sort of held me back for many years. Cause I knew that I knew that like I have gotten unstuck from a lot of adversity, but it's like my particular thing. Some of them, I couldn't even ever, I didn't even know how they happened much less be able to teach it to somebody else. But then later I realized, no, it's, I don't have to show them the exact steps just by me saying what I did. 
people on their own sort of extrapolate it. That's, that's just what happens. So that's why I'm doing these interviews is because, you know, each person has their way that things happened and those people listening can still get value, even though they're not going to necessarily subscribe to the exact same formula because it is never the same formula. Everybody has, even if you have the same diagnosis and all of these same variables, there's other variables that make it all diff completely different. So we each have to find our own way. There is no the answer to anything. Right. I have a mentor who a long time ago uh, referred me to a poem by Rilke or a letter he wrote that encouraged somebody else to live their own questions. They don't do what I tell you to do. You can hear what I say, but follow your own path. Totally. Okay, so what else? Uh, so what else? As I said, I came back through surgery. I will still receive the immunotherapy. And last Friday, I went for radiation mapping, which um, was an interesting experience. They um, have this little pillow with little balls in it that they fill with air and they get you into a position so that every time you go into the machine, they set your pillow and you, the radiation is going in the exact same location. They also put some little tiny tattoos on you, which is just, they put some dye and do a little needle prick and the ink goes under your skin. Um, I will start radiation probably in early October. And because my pathology was clean, I will have 15 treatments instead of 20, which was excellent news. Mm -hmm. And um, the side effects are supposed to be relatively mild skin irritation, possibly some fatigue, um, but I'm expecting, hoping to go through it without, without any real snags or bumps. And um, as I said, you know, there's that little bit of identity loss piece with, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm losing my, I'm losing my team. I'm losing my medical team. But the last time I saw the oncologist, he said, no, 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 you don't get rid of us that easy. <laughs> um, you will have follow-ups um, at about three month intervals to start. And then as time passes, that will extend. So in a way that was kind of really reassuring to know that I'm really not saying goodbye. I just won't see them as frequently. Right. And this is, this is the interesting thing about identity loss and forced identity transition. And even chosen identity transition is that once we leave something behind, there's this void. And, you know, the universe does not like a void. Mm. And so you, it sounds like you're in this, this, point right now where you're having a little bit of a void because life as you knew it during that treatment where you found a way to really embrace it in a to me it sounds like an extraordinary way is you know that particular part is over and so you're sort of like adjusting 
you're, you're in this void space where you're kind of adjusting to, okay, so what comes next? Okay, I'm still gonna get to see them, but I'm not gonna be sitting there for like however many hours, don't you have to sit there for hours? in the yes. chair with the chemo yeah it's not like you're going for like a you know you don't have to bring your lunch and and your because the radiation is pretty fast right that's my understanding it's very fast you're in and out within about 10 or 15 minutes yeah so this is a this is you're going to still see the people but you're not it's just the relation the nature of the relationship is changing and that's always in any kind of relationship it's it's you're in this limbo state of like okay so so what is it going to be now what's the opportunity that this is is how i'm trying to look at it what's the opportunity now that this has happened and how might i give back yes wow or is the words that i just learned and i'm going to start using how do i bounce forward with this opportunity oh, yes that's beautiful. Makes me think of Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. Oh. On his tail, bouncing. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Um, so I know, so I know that you're in, I mean, obviously you're still in this forced identity transition. You who you were before that diagnosis, the gale you were is is still there but now you have evolved into a new form of gale and i'm wondering so this is we can't know until we get further along but i'm just wondering if you have any kind of inklings already like let's say you're you're two years forward and you're back to your life without all this cancer treatment and it's all like in remission is that what they say do they say it's gone in remission i'm not i'm not sure with my type of cancer what the oncologist wrote on my paper on my very first um, appointment was that the goal of treatment was cured and he wrote it all in capital letters so i don't know if i'm considered cured or if i'm in remission Okay, well, either one of those. Do you have an inkling of who you're going to be in, you know, two years from now, sort of as a result of who you were before and who you are becoming right now? This isn't a trick question, but of course, it's like guessing in the dark, but I'm just curious because I don't really get to interview that many people who are actually in the middle of their identity transition. And so I'm just wondering, like what whispers are going on of, of this person that, you know, if everything goes as planned and you get this whole life still ahead of you, who's that person that you wish to be? Well, I will say that um, this journey has made me stronger, possibly more outgoing, or just more comfortable talking to people about personal parts of my life. Two years from now, I would hope that in some way I can be inspiring others to live their best life 
by taking agency and believing in themselves and recognizing that in every experience we have, we do, we may not be able to choose the reality. I couldn't choose the reality of whether I had cancer or not. I couldn't choose the reality that I needed to have treatment if I wanted to live, but I could choose how I showed up. And I guess I would say that would be the one thing that really motivates me, gives me energy is I would love to inspire other people to have that same gift because it really, it just makes life so much richer and more enjoyable when you do feel like you have a say in what's happening. And so let's just go one level deeper. Why is it so important to have a say in what's happening? Ooh. You don't feel like a victim. You feel like a participant. You feel like you're on the team. And what's wrong with feeling like a victim? Hmm. I, I, I don't... I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, it's, it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling to feel like things are happening to me and I can't do anything about them. So what are the feelings that come up when, when you let yourself into that space? Mm, the victim space? Yeah. Uh, sadness, disempowerment, maybe anger. And when you're in the choice space, you could still have sadness, but it's a different flavor of sadness and even anger, right? Yeah, I think you can have them. I really like the word joy and the way that I define it is different from happiness. Happiness is temporary. In, in my definition, happiness comes and goes, but joy is different in that whatever comes your way comes kind of back to Byron Katie full circle with loving what is. You are alive and you are getting these experiences and you can learn and grow from them as a person. And I guess that that would be how I feel is I feel I feel joyous even though cancer isn't something I would have chosen, it has helped me grow tremendously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of, I, 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 can, I can understand what you're saying. I had, um, without going into like two day long story of my own, I got, uh, I was, I lived in Colombia, South America, and I was sick all the time. And, and I ended up with some stuff and, and yet I would never change really anything because that made, even though it caused lots of difficulties in my life and it was very difficult at the time, I did, I grew, I understood life at a depth that we don't understand it when life isn't really hard and scary. Yes, yeah. And then it, and it makes it easier, not easier, it makes us able to appreciate the little things in life that so often we take for granted. 
And even without being sick, just living in another country and seeing such desperation, such poverty and suffering. But, you know, and when you get a life-threatening illness and stuff, that's when we can actually, we have something to compare and contrast against. And that just enriches life in a way that, that you can't have when everything's vanilla. You know, when yes. everything is just like, okay, or even when it's really good. Uh, somebody somewhere I read the phrase or somebody said it to me that the cracks are where the light gets in so I think that's so beautiful and I love that you said that it enhances your gratitude for the little things yeah and and you know we we think that we're living for the big things like I finally made it and you know I finally got what I was after and when it comes down to it, when like, you know, regrets of the dying, it's the little things. It's, the, it's, it's the little actually things. the little things, the daily stuff that actually counts. And so we, we, you know, the more that we can be aware of that and these, and these big life jolts of these earthquake events, Definitely, I mean, that's a, a through line in these stories is that people start to realize what really matters. And what a gift it is that you you offer this to others, Julie. I, I think it's a tremendous gift that you invite people on to share their stories and that um, you then share them with an audience. And so how does sharing, how does giving you the offer, opportunity to share your story help you? Oh, that's I mean, because I mean, because so a lot of people on podcasts are on podcasts because they want to sell their products and services. But in, in, you know, like that's not what you're doing. So how does it help you? Why, why is it a that, gift? I'm just curious. Allowing me to share my experience allows me to hopefully do what I said that I would hope to be doing two years from now, which is offer inspiration to somebody else who is in a similar situation. So it lights a fire. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we have a few minutes left. What is there anything else in the story that that got overlooked with all of my digging deeper? <laughs> Uh, with all of you digging deeper. Um, let me think. Oh, th there is something that I think is important for people who are going through medical treatment to hear. And that was on one of my first um, MRIs. And I came out of the machine and the technician said, oh, you did great because you're supposed to stay very still and otherwise it messes with the magnets and to keep your breathing pretty steady. And I said, well, that's great. I'm trying to be the best patient I can be. And she said, I shouldn't say this, but you'll get better treatment because of it. Totally. And maybe she shouldn't have said it, but it's a truth about human, human nature. When you show up and you have a smile and you're cooperative, the person you're working with is going to be more apt to, to want to reciprocate. Whereas if you're grumpy and short-tempered, they're going to want to get you in and out of their space as soon as they can. 
Yeah, I mean, people in the medical field aren't angels. None of us are. We're all humans and it hurts when people are mean to us. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, the, the physician suicide rate is like through the roof. Oh, I had not heard that. Yeah. Physicians, doctors are committing suicide because they are so unhappy with their situation. And so they are just as human as we are as are all of the nurses and everybody, you know, up to the receptionists, and they are having bad days just the way we are. They have their own life and problems outside of work, and they bring them there, and they're, you know, professional, and hopefully don't share them with us, because we have our own, enough of our own problem, you know, that's for, like, friend stuff, not professional, but yeah, I can totally see how you get better treatment if you, if you treat people better. Right. And anywhere in life, it, yeah. if you are kind and respectful, you may not always get that in return, but it's, it's human nature to reciprocate. So I would say more times than not, what you put out is what you get back. Um, so one of my personal development teachers, Brendan Burchard, this like big famous guy, one of his themes that he teaches his students is bring the joy. Don't wait for somebody else to bring it. Don't mm. expect it just to show up. Intentionally bring it. That's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. And so we can, again, back to making a choice versus life happening to you, like, you know, like I might not be feeling great, but I'm not going to show up here and say, oh, you know, I'm so tired and I have a headache. I'm going to show up and, and make the most of the moment, which is to focus on something more uplifting for both of us. And that's not to say to deny if you're like completely miserable or something, but it's to you know, because that that's that's a whole big problem too. But just just the human relations thing of of treating people well. Yes. And I will say that also as part of the last six months of my treatment, I have been um, following somebody on Instagram. I, sorry, I can't remember her name, but she talks a lot about setting boundaries and people pleasing. So it's true. If you are being mistreated, you're not saying don't speak up or advocate for yourself, but there's a way that you can do it, I think, kindly. Yeah. And, and you know, we can do our best and still get mistreated. But the, the intention is, is to for, do what we can to treat others better. Right. And that's and that's my whole reason why I'm doing this work is to help people grow into and create the best identity possible for them. Then they'll be a happier person. And when we're a happier person, we treat other people better. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like the word you used with me when we met last week was spiraling, like when somebody is having this forced life transition to help them spiral up instead of spiral down. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Will, we got to jump off. Um, is there, how do people find you online? Oh, thank you for asking. So I do write a daily newsletter called Three Muses Merge written by the point of view of three muses, which are really just voices in my head. We all have voices in our head, right? Vying for our attention and quite a few of personalities. Them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that is at three muses merge.substack.com. Three with letter three or spelled out three? Uh, the number three. Number three. Number three. Letter three. <laughs> <laughs> three muses merge meaning they're all merging inside of me oh yeah at substack s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k dot com all right well thank you so much gail thank you julie what a pleasure thank you and this has been julie brown on bold becoming hey there the value that you got from this today take it into your heart Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others and make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.